thing. I always just want to jump up from the ground and I kind of think better of myself after I'm thinking I can just see it unfolding before my eyes that I miss the stage and I fall off and I'm on the ground with a sprained ankle or something and no one can hear what I've got to say after that because everybody's too busy laughing. So anyway, that's just a moment <coughs> um, to understand what happens in my brain from time to time. So good morning. Good morning. How are you feeling today? You're warming up now? Still a bit cold. It stays like these that we're thankful that we have Oasis Chapel and not a lot of room because it means we get to snuggle a bit tightly, a bit more tight together and keep each other warm. Is that right? Yes, this is our beautiful little place, Oasis Chapel, we love to call it because it's small and intimate. Anyway, <clears throat> hope that you're warming up and um, got some good news for you. Our amazing kids pastor... Pastor Kate had her twins on Friday, a little boy and a little girl, Jonah, 2.6 kilos, and Annabella, 2.61, and they're beautiful, and we got to cuddle them, and Kate's doing so well, and Adrian's hanging in there too. <laughs> so that's good news, hey? And um, before we get into How's Your Soul?, uh, I just want to say, Oasis Church, you are the most generous people that I know. And last week we had Miracle Offering, um, which we do once a year. And every year we use the money that you give and we put it towards something. And, and last year, you've heard the story, we put it towards um, launching churches, 79. We put our money toward launching 79 different churches, not just our money, but we put it toward... Um, around the world, 79 new churches. We um, put it towards um, a big Christmas event that we did for our community and we put some of it towards getting our own building and we bought these chairs out of it as well. And we've got some left over and we're going to combine that <coughs> with what you gave this year to find ourselves a great venue. This is just our transition home, we're not staying here, we're moving on. So don't get too comfy in Oasis Chapel. And um, I'm not telling you yet how much we raised because people still want to give. So if you haven't yet had the opportunity, the privilege to sow into the future of Oasis Church, there's envelopes around the place and you can just fill them out and pop them in the offering bucket at the end of the service and you can join us in sowing seed for the future. Amen. Amen. So we'll do the great reveal, as Joel put it, um, in about two weeks and um, it'll be a great celebration of what God can do through us. Amen. So how's your soul? Yeah, how's your soul? I mean, Joel asked you to, to stare into the person's eyes next to you and be a little creepy about that. But how is your soul? How is your soul? This morning... Um, I just want to teach. I'm not going to preach this morning. I'm going to teach. I'm going to give line upon line upon line. I'm going to teach you what your soul is. I'm going to take you on a little bit of history. I love a bit of a little bit of church history to say to to show you how we came to this point in time where we believe what we believe about our soul. And I want to tell you this morning what your soul needs. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Okay. I get excited about teaching. For those of you who don't know, I am actually a teacher. And I really do love it. And I love communicating information in a way that goes into a person's life and changes them. So let's go. 
Okay, so here's, uh, here's the leading question for this series, okay? How can I have a healthy soul in a chaotic world? Who would agree the world is chaotic? Hands up, show me your hands. Come on, everybody, everybody, everybody. Yep, amen. Okay, we all agree then that we're living in a chaotic world. So how can we have a healthy soul in it? Okay, so for us in the day and the time that we live in, there are so many pressure factors in our lives which have a bearing on the health of our soul. Financial, relational, emotional, physical, uh, social and spiritual. And, you know, the thing about that is that God never promised an easy job at life. He never said, hey... This is going to be so easy. You guys are going to just do so well. You're going to knock it out of the park. He didn't say that. He gave all the patriarchs of the Bible hard tasks to fulfill, very challenging tasks. For example, Moses. He said, hey, Moses, you're going to take 600,000 men, not including women and children, out of another man's kingdom and you're just going to walk on out with them. To Abraham, he said, you're going to leave your own home and you're going to take everything and you're going to go to a place that I'm not telling you. How about that? To Noah, he said, hey, Noah, I want you to make me a boat. It's going to take you 75 years to build, to carry animals so that they don't die in a flood that I'm sending. And by the way, the people had never even seen rain before. The Bible says it was never rain before that time. So he's trying to get his head around, well, where's the water coming from? I don't understand. He never asks us to do easy things. Can I hear an amen? The jobs that God gives us are pioneering the kingdom of heaven on, on earth. That's the jobs that he gives us to do. He said, Jesus said this. He says, in this world you will have trouble. Thank you. But, but take heart because I've overcome the world. That's what he said. He did say easy once though. He did say easy once. He said this. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, easy is a soul word. It's not a circumstance word. It's a soul word. If we aim for having easy circumstances, life will be hard all around. But if we aim at having an easy soul, our capacity at handling our circumstances will grow. An easy soul. The soul was not made for an easy life, but it was made for an easy yoke shared with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Okay, so first question today, number one, what is a soul? What is a soul? So I want to give you some lessons in Greek this morning. So the New Testament is written in Greek and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But Scripture gives us... Um, and a number, there's a number of different scriptures that give us some understanding of the human being and how we're made up. 
And the one I want to use primarily this morning, and there are many, but this is one that I want to use. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in this scripture, we can see that we are not just one part, we are not just two, but we are three parts in our human being. We are body, we are soul, and we are spirit. Now in the Greek, it gives different words to each of those things. So I just want to go through them with you so that you can understand. So there's a slide coming up. But the body in Greek, the word is soma. Say soma. Soma. And it literally just means the physical body. Your blood, your organs, your bones, your muscles. It's the body. The soul is, it's, it says psyche, right? But it's actually pronounced, if you, if you were Greek, you would say suke. Suke. Say suke. Suke. So that's the soul. And the soul is what runs your life. It correlates, integrates and enlivens everything that is going on in the, in the various dimensions of self. You know, it's interesting that it has a definite size and shape and it's structured like the human body. And we know this because in 1 Samuel 28, verse 8 to 19, there's a story of King Saul conjuring up Samuel from the dead, and he looks like Samuel. So your soul looks like you. And then we've got spirit, which is pneuma. It's the breath of God in every human being. It's the energy which sustains life. And as spirit form, it's not, de- it's not defined by natural laws. It can move in ways that aren't defined by natural laws. It has senses, the same way the physical body has senses. The Spirit's function in our lives is for inspiration, for vision and for creativity. And your spirit made alive in Christ Jesus is like a shining light illuminating onto your brain and your mind. So a quick point here then, what is the difference in body, soul and spirit between a Christian and a non-Christian. And it's very easy. It's found in Romans 8.10 and there's other scriptures as well. It says, if Christ is in you, the spirit is alive. So we have to deduct that there's a certain death on a spirit that is yet unawakened to Christ. There's other scriptures in the book of John which talks about if Christ is in you, then there is living waters coming up out of you. So that's the difference. So as you can see this morning, three parts, yet we are one, just like God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're both three-part triune beings. So when we think about body, soul, and spirit, I know that probably some of you have had this, heard that the soul is your mind, will, and emotions, but Scripture is very unclear on that. It says the spirit has emotions at times. It says the spirit um, has will. And so I, we can only deduct that the three are so enmeshed that they, that, that will, emotion, it comes from all three, that all three work together in that way. 
Now, the ancient Hebrew mindset was that even though we are spirit, soul and body, we are one. And that we weren't meant to break them apart and focus on, oh, your spirit, oh, your soul, oh, your body. You were, you were holistic and they lived a holistic life. They lived a naturally um, supernatural life. They, the spirit, they, they walked in the spirit very, very naturally. That's how they... That's how they walked. That's how they moved. And everything that they did, they, they moved in being a three-part being. So it wasn't like, oh, it's church day. We better be spiritual today. And then Monday, you know, live out of the flesh, live out of the desires of the soul. No, they were very um, holistic about how they did their life, how they worked. And that was their, that was their mindset, that, that the spirit, soul and body, they relied on each other and they were interdependent and they weren't to be broken apart. Now, if you think about running a marathon, who is thinking about running a marathon? Anyone here this morning? <laughs> mm, not here. Anyway, one day, it's on my bucket list. It's actually on my bucket list. One day I'd like to run a marathon. Is it on anyone else's bucket list? One, one day, one, one day, a really long way away. I don't know. Anyway, one day. So, you know, if you would like to run a marathon one day and it looks like I'm the only one here, then you just can't will it. You just can't will yourself into running a marathon. You need to train your body. You know, if I just woke up this morning, oh, it's HBF City to surf. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to will my body to do it. My body's not going not gonna to run for very far before I'm exhausted and laying down on the ground gagging for air because you have to train your body. You have to have self-control, which is a fruit of the spirit. And you have to have the will to train. So it's this three-part but one getting ready for a marathon. Getting out of bed on a winter's morning is a, is a holistic affair, is it not? It's like, oh, the will is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Anyone else have that issue? I'm glad I'm not alone with that one. Okay, so that's what your soul is. Now, the next part that I want to move into is to let you know that your soul is a good thing. Your soul is a good thing. And this is where I get to um, give you a brief history of the soul, which I'm just so excited about. This, this, this part changed my life when I learned about the history of the soul. And I'm hoping it's going to change yours too. So I really wanted a whiteboard here, ideally, you know, so I could just draw circles and notes and different colours for you and that would have made it amazing. So what we had to do is do it at home and because um, we couldn't fit the whiteboard in the car anyway. <laughs> so... I've taken some, some photos and we'll go through it and hopefully you can see it. If you can't, I'll try and, try and do my best to explain it. But, um, you know, at some point in time, if we, can we have that first photo, that first photo up? <coughs> so, here we go. Can you see that all right? Do you need to put your special glasses on? Anyway, so you can see here, this is my timeline and I just want to explain it to you yeah, without the glasses. Jesus is there, he's in the centre, and you've got BC and AD. Well, sort of the ancient Hebrew thought or culture dominated most of history up until about 800 BC, which is when Greek thought started to come into play. It was this beginning of thinking in a different way. Around 200 BC, 
to 400 AD. There's this war going on between Hebrew thought and Greek thought. Now you can see some of the war. It plays out in Scripture. In Acts somewhere it talks about how Paul um, rebukes some, some people. I can't, oh, what was he? The Epicureans and the, the Stoics. They were, Epicureans were like people who were all about pleasure. You know, your life is just meant to be about pleasure and not pain. And then there was Stoicism, which was a similar kind of thing. And, the, and Paul addresses them in Acts and, and they mock him. So you can see the war even playing out in Scripture. That Greek thought and ancient Hebrew thought are at loggerheads. They believe different things. And then in about 400 AD, Greek thought supersedes ancient Hebrew thought. Now, with that came the idea that... The, the Greeks were very much, well, they were very spiritual people. And their ideology was that anything spiritual is good and anything natural is evil or bad. That was how they, through the filter of their lens, that was how they saw life. And that crept in to church life. So if, if we can go to the next one, please, the next slide. So here we go. The thought, the ancient Hebrew thought was that man was holistic. Man was spirit, soul and body in one. Greek thought came in and said, no, we are spirit separate, soul separate and body separate. Next slide, please. And that the spirit is good and the soul and body was evil. Now, around 400 AD, or actually, let's go back to Oregon, and he was, he was in the first, second century. This was a guy who was a Christian. He came to know Jesus. Now, he um, was, was, was filled with um, Christianity, but then also being impacted heavily by this Greek thought. And so he would sleep on um, bare boards and he found it so hard controlling himself and his sexual desires in particular that he took one day two bricks and he ended his sexual desire forever, if you get my drift. So much so. Are you just getting that now? I didn't really want to just say it, you know, just leave it to you to figure that out. So... That was how it influenced the church. And then in 400, we've got one of our early church fathers who impacted so many after him. In 400 AD, his name's Augustine. He also struggled with this. And many people followed after him in that way. So now we've got, at the time, so Augustine, he used Hebrews 4.12. Let me read it to you. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So if we can just jump back to that last slide for a minute. Thanks, Danny. You're doing a great job back there. Can we go backwards? There it is. So they used this scripture then the, in Greek thought to 
pierce the sword that it's talking about in Ephesians 4 between spirit, soul and body to separate them, to say that the spirit is good and that the soul and the body is bad. But it was Hebrew thought that the sword went right through the middle of them all to judge the intents and motives of the heart. Can you see the difference there? Now that, can you see the difference there? Okay, so their thoughts were, if you want to take photos, just go ahead of that screen and go through it later. But the thought was that everything spiritual was good, but everything natural was bad. Now that, again, has crept into the church today. It's still very present. So if you've been walking with God for some time and you've been going to other churches, this might be evident in you. If you came to know Jesus in this church, we avoid this at all costs because this was my, my history. This is how I became a Christian. I thought that everything spiritual was good and everything soul and body was bad. It took some time to work that out of me. But let me tell you, and the reason I'm letting you all know all this is because I want you to examine your own soul right now and understand that your soul is valuable, that your soul is precious that your soul is loved by God, your soul is on a journey to being sanctified, but it is a good thing. So quickly, if you're a Christian and you struggle with a dualist mindset, this will be some of the things that you feel, okay? So you can check the list. That you struggle with sin and then you, that you never enter into grace or victory. The interesting thing is that the more rebellion a jeweler stacks against their own soul, the more condemnation they heap upon themselves, and it's a vicious cycle. People with a jeweler's mindset feel like they're being spiritual when they do things they don't like. People with a jeweler's mindset judge success by denying desires and detaching from the natural world. People with a dualist mindset see the world as evil and only heaven as good. When Jesus said, the world, um, don't love the world, he wasn't talking about his creation, the, the world. He was talking about the world mindsets. Don't love the world's mindsets, but love creation. He made that. Someone with a dualist mindset will see that money is evil and that Christians should be poor. Someone with a dualist mindset would struggle with their Christianity as they try to redeem their own souls. Possibly also a, someone with a dualist mindset would live a double life as they can't control their own sin so they end up relenting to ungodly desires and living in secret sin. And we've seen that a lot. Now, Martin Luther King, as amazing as he was, and he led a brilliant reformation in his time, he was also a dualist. He studied the works of Augustine, and, you know, he had four children, and he, he wouldn't let them have any material comfort. He said that everything that he earned had to go toward the cause, and so his family were left wanting a lot of the time for just general, basic needs. You know, even Martin Luther King... Sorry, Martin Luther, he, um, he had a lot of extramarital affairs, many. In fact, even the night that he was assassinated, he was with another woman. Keeping secrets kills the soul. So here's another interesting word. So we had body, we had soul, we had spirit. Soma, suke, 
and Numa. And here's another one, flesh. Can we pop that up? Flesh. So often the Bible talks about the flesh, kill the flesh, crucify the flesh, condemn the flesh. But flesh is not soma, flesh is not suke, flesh is not numa, flesh is sucks. So when we talk about the soul and the body being evil, no, that's not right. Sarks is the evil part. Sarks is the corrupt nature of man that we need to be getting rid of, that we need to partner with the Holy Spirit to get to be sanctified. Is this coming out all right? You're all very quiet looking at me like, are you holding on? <laughs> Going, what? Are we all good? Give me a thumbs up. Come on, church. All right, we're all good. Okay. All right, here we go. Let's push on. So we're teaching. This is a, this is a little lesson. So sarks is the corrupt nature of man. When the Bible speaks about, hey, let's crucify your flesh, it's not talking about crucifying your soul or your body. It's talking about crucifying the corrupt nature of man, the part of you that's not yet been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Can you see the difference now? For some of you who have never understood that, maybe this will help you and enlighten you and know that your soul is made by God and it is good. He rejoices in you. You are precious in his sight. Okay, so before God, he sees your whole self, your body, soul, spirit. And he wants you to value all three, body, soul, spirit. He wants to sanctify you entirely. That's First Thessalonians 5.23. I want to sanctify you, body, soul, and spirit. Now, the part of the thing about the dualist is that to, to, they try and sanctify themselves by condemning themselves, crucifying themselves, trying to um, ignore or, or, or like Oregon, you know, break themselves so that they won't sin anymore. And that's not the godly way of dealing with sin. If, you, if in your body, in your soul and in your spirit, because your spirit can be unsanctified, the Bible says that. First Thessalonians, he wouldn't say that he wanted to sanctify your spirit unless it needed it. There are other ways that the Holy Spirit uses to deal with sin. And I just want to go through these really quickly. So instead of beating yourself up consistently over the things that you mess up, you don't get right, you're trying to kill that evil nature in your own self, here's some things that you can try that are in the Bible. So number one, you can pray a prayer like David prayed and invite the Holy Spirit in to bring his sanctification. Psalm 139.23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my anxieties. Invite him in to know you and allow the Holy Spirit to cleanse you. That's one way. Does that sound much easier than some of the other things that we've attempted to get rid of our sin? Yes? Yes. Number two, you can read the Word. Read your Bible. It's not just words on a page. It's life to you. Do you know Ephesians 5.26 says, To make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word. The Word cleanses you. Is that not amazing? Does reading the Word sound like a hard thing to do? No. Number three, you can tell someone what you're struggling with and you can get them to pray for you. 
Because James 4.16 says, Confess your trespasses or your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You can pray for each other. Does that sound easy? Yes, it's not hard to deal with our sin. And number four, you can avoid temptation. If you struggle with alcohol and you're, you know, you're thinking about going to the pub, I wouldn't say that that was a great thing to do. I would say avoid that pub. You know, if you struggle with pornography, I would say it's probably time for you to avoid computers or get some things set up on your phone that helps you to not go there. Avoid temptation. Put structures in place for your weaknesses so that you can avoid those things which try and pull you in. It's not hard. And you can think about holy things. Romans 8, 5 to 14 said, For those who are according to the flesh, sarks, not your body, not your soul, sarks, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is in you, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So what are you setting your mind on? It's not hard to deal with sin in your soul. Okay, so, so far we've deducted, everybody, that we are what? Body, soul and spirit. We've deducted that we're made, <coughs> well, we haven't deducted this, but I'm telling you, we're made in the image of God and that we're good, that God loves our soul, he loves our spirit, he loves our body. We're one before him that we're in the process of being sanctified by his Holy Spirit, that there are different ways that we can be sanctified, that our soul is a good thing. It's something to be cherished and valued. Okay, so what now then does my soul need? What does my soul need? <coughs> and here's a few quick thoughts. We're nearly there. Are we doing okay? Okay. Number one, it needs God. Your soul needs God. Psalm 42, 1 says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Whether you realise it or not, your soul longs for God. Isaiah 26, 9 says, My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. In the beginning... God made the perfect place for your soul to flourish and it was in the Garden of Eden with him. Now, the soul is needy. It's always wanting more. Who can say, yes, my soul is always wanting more, more, more. You know, God designed your soul that way. He designed you to be needy. He designed you to crave after more, more, more because you know what it does? It just reflects the capacity of the generosity of God to give more. Our soul always craves more because God is able to give more, give more, give more of his presence, give more of his spirit. He's able to keep refreshing, renewing, feeding that hungry, craving soul. You are a soul made by God, for God, and made to need God, which means that you are not meant to be self-sufficient. You are meant to need God. When we spend time with God, he replenishes our soul. And the best place to start spending time with God is just in the small moments. 
deliberately look for God in the small, very unordinary moments of life and tune in. Now, if you wanted to right now in your seat, you could tune in. You could just still your soul for a moment. You know, I often just do this in the car and I try and keep my eyes open. (laughs) But you can just tune in wherever you are, whatever you're doing. You can tune in. You make a conscious decision to tune in. Can you do that right now? I bet you could. Just do it. Tune in. Sometimes it just helps to tune in by saying, Jesus, I love you. You be with me. I know you're with me. Do you feel the shift when you tune in? You can do that anywhere, anytime. Your soul needs God. Okay, number two, it needs rest. Your soul needs rest. We were made to rest in God like a tree rests in soil. I love that. In Ephesians 3, 17 to 19, it says, Be rooted and established in love. We were made to be like that, just to, just to sit in soil like a tree, being rooted and established in God's love. Now, in the Old Testament, God's provision to the people for rest was the seventh day. As God rested from all of the creating he was doing, it was a very busy, busy week. You know, on the seventh day, he rested. And he gave us the same mandate that on the seventh day, just rest. But when Jesus came, he taught, men, he taught the men that Sabbath was important, but he also fulfilled the Sabbath. Now he is our rest. So any day, at any time, it can be Sabbath. Because we can access Jesus Christ who refreshes our weary souls. In Matthew eleven twenty eight to 29, again, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the Sabbath. Whenever you're feeling stressed out, wrung out, you know, leaking out, peeking out, whatever, you can go to Jesus in that moment. Just like I taught you to tune in and he will bring rest. Rest, rest into your soul. So that's a, a inner rest that you can have 24-7. But there's also an outer rest that we need for our physical bodies at times. Now, God has given full-time workers four weeks of holidays a year. Did I just say God has given? No, that was wrong. I'm getting carried away. Employers have given full-time workers four weeks of holidays a year. Is that right? For most of us. If you're a teacher, (laughs) well, we won't talk about that because, you know, everybody's always jealous, aren't they, Sal? Yeah, we work in the holidays. That's our line and we're sticking with it. You need to take holidays. You need to take real physical holidays. If you've got four weeks a year, you really need to use them. And I just think, You know, if you do money God's way, you know, we talk about here, we talk about 10% tithe, 10% for generosity, 10% for savings, 70% for living. If you take your 10% for savings, you can go on holiday. It's that easy. And I think we need it. And I think we need to stop making excuses because we are, we have a mortal encasement. This physical body, it needs rest. You know, the inside of us, doesn't need so much rest. It's pushing us. But our body, it needs rest. We are human. 
Amen? So that's a little love smack. Take a holiday. Someone told me this morning I haven't taken a holiday for a few years. And, you know, every year you need to take time. Take time. Okay, number three, it needs purpose. Nearly done here. The soul was designed to work and to add and create value. You were designed to work. Ecclesiastes 2.24 says, Nothing is better than for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This I saw was from the hand of God. We were made to enjoy work. Our souls were made to enjoy it. The calling of God is equal no matter whether you're raising kids at home, whether you're preaching from a platform, no matter what you do, it is the calling of God and it is all equal. It is all work before God and you were designed for good works. Now, there was a study in the USA done about the top 10 jobs that people were the happiest in. And they found that they weren't the best paid, but what they found about it was that it wasn't about status and it wasn't about the pay, but it was that they felt that they were adding meaning and value to the world and to other people's lives. And so Isaiah 58.10 says, If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, if you do that, then this is what will happen to you. Then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. Because we were meant to add value. We were meant to contribute. Okay, moving on. Skipping some stuff. Last one, number four. Your soul needs freedom in uniqueness. Your soul needs freedom in uniqueness. So even in this, the way we nourish our whole self is by doing things that we enjoy and that God has gifted us to do. Isaiah 64, 8 says, Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter and we are all formed by your hand. God doesn't love us equally. He loves us uniquely. I'm going to say that again. God doesn't love us equally. He loves us uniquely. He loves the way he created you, the way he formed you, the gifts, the talents, the personality that he's given you. He loves that about you. You know, Laura, she loves pink. Hello, Laura. Um, you know, and we love that about her and God loves it about her. Her house is blooming with pink and her hair is pink and she loves to wear pink and God has created that way. <laughs> and, you know, she's passionate about teens and that is uniquely Laura and God loves that about her. You know, I could go around to each of you And to say something about you that we all know because you are unique before God and your soul needs to be free in your uniqueness because that's how you were created. Socialism and comparison are two things that are trying to squash your uniqueness. They're trying to make us all the same. And when we are unique and there's these pressures of being the same, we feel ashamed of our uniqueness. We don't like being who we are because we're not like everybody else. But God designed you to relish and enjoy your uniqueness. Your soul needs that. Quick story of a a guy who did a lot of work in Russia um, in the post-communism days and they were trying to get 
pastors to, to plant churches, people to plant churches, and no one would put up their hand to do it. And no one would put up their hand to do anything out of the ordinary because they were also squashed in their uniqueness. They were all like, no, I can't be different to anybody else. And it took a long time for them to start getting pastors to believe in, this is a good thing for you to do because so much mental anguish about not being free in their uniqueness. Okay, last little thing. If you find comparison a real threat in your life, the, the easy, the very easy solution to that problem is to bless people that you're jealous of or bless people that you're comparing yourself to. You know, if someone around you is succeeding financially or relationally or they get a promotion, celebrate them and pray for them. And in that moment, if you pray to God and say, God, bless them, make them better at this than me. Promote them. Give them favour and prosperity. Give them amazing friends. Give them the best job. Let their hair always look immaculate. You know what? That'll change the inside of you like nothing else. That's the antidote to comparison. Amen.